to DTC Pod, where we take you behind the wheel with the best founders and operators of consumer brands. You'll learn the ins and outs of business from setting up shop, hitting your first million, scaling past eight figures, and even navigating an exit. As founders ourselves, our goal is to help you learn from the best as you build. Visit us at DTCPod.com to sign up for our weekly newsletter, join our founder community, and find additional resources from every episode. DTC Pod is brought to you by Trend, the creative solution for your brand. Go to trend.io to access thousands of creators for content needs such as product photography, unboxing videos, or even TikTok and IG organic creative. Use the code DTCPOD10 for 10% off your next content purchase. Are you curious how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from OpenStore at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution, helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTCPod. Alexandra, why don't you give us a little quick background about uh, your career, your history as an entrepreneur, and just a quick background so our audience gets to know your story. Sure. So I am a serial entrepreneur, now turned growth equity investor. I am most known for being co-founder of Gilt, which we launched back in 2007, Um, really the leader in flash sale e-commerce in the US. And after that, went on to be co-founder, CEO of Glam Squad in the on-demand beauty services um, arena. When there was the Uber of everything, I had to get my fix of on-demand. Went on to do another two startups, partnered with a man named Michael Klein. Um, One of those, it was called Fitz, we sold to Tradesy. Um, a peer-to-peer luxury reseller. The other one we sold to Google before it launched. And then I spent two and a half years leading everything digital and consumer at the pharmaceutical company Allergan, uh, which was a lot of fun to be in big corporate with uh, pharma budgets, learned a lot. Um, For those that don't know Allergan, you might know Botox or Juvederm. Um, So they had a big, exciting um, aesthetics portfolio and and I, hired and led a team of 70. And then um, after Allergan got acquired by AbbVie, I finally um, went down the path I knew I would eventually go down, which was investing. So I partnered with a woman named Lisa Myers, and we launched a growth equity fund called Clarity. And it is consumer and tech-sumer focused um, and growth equity stage. So for us so far, that's been series B. And we've made three investments. It's an $84 million fund. And we are having fun with our fund, let me tell you. you know, it's, it's so exciting to be able to apply all that experience operating and not just in one specific sector, but across multiple different types of companies and being able to apply that again as an investor. So I think that's that's really cool. So why don't, well, I definitely wanna cover a lot on the growth investing side, especially in the consumer and tech-sumer sort of space. But why don't we go back a little bit further to um, guilt and maybe even before guilt, right? Like I think today, a lot of people who are listening know guilt and it's like an icon in e-commerce. It was like one of the big sites that popped up. It was actually, even for me, it was one of the first places I started. It was my first e-commerce shopping experience. (laughs) My sister invited me. Um, And I think we should also double click on that. And like, it was one of the earliest referral invite programs that took the internet by storm um i'm curious where did your where did the idea for guilt get sparked from i guess that attaches to your career previously from guilt where did sort of all of this it was sort of the perfect storm that came together where did all of that come from so lots of questions <laughs> let me see because I, I could talk for hours we actually wrote a book about building guilt um Alexis Maybank and I, uh, my co-founder, and she's still one of my very best friends. We wrote a book by invitation only, How We Built Guilt and Changed the Way Millions Shop. So if anyone really wants to learn more, definitely check the book out. Um, Guilt 
Kate's idea was was really a series of aha moments. Um, so part part of the concept was to take the excitement of a New York City sample sale online. So prior to Gilt, I um, worked at Bulgari, uh, running retail stores in the U.S. Before that, I was at Louis Vuitton in their management and training program, which I did after getting my MBA. So super humbling on the sales floor, wearing a uniform and an LV pin, putting shoes on people's feet at, uh, at the flagship store and at the shop and shop in um, Saks Fifth Avenue and really learned the nuts and bolts of retail. Guilt for me in 2007 was my first e-commerce experience. Um, never went back to brick and mortar really, um, sort of stayed in, in e-commerce, but I mean, we took a lot of, I think, you clever marketing tactics and approach back then that wouldn't necessarily apply today. So one one tactic was the $25 give get referral. So if I invited the two of you the first time you actually spend money um, shopping on Gilt, if you became a member, I would get 25 bucks for each, for each one of you and, and you would get $25. So that really helped us grow initially. I mean, it was by invitation only. And the idea for that was really to, you know, two ideas. One was like, you think of a really hot nightclub um, that has a velvet rope outside. The, yeah. re the reality is when it's brand new, it might actually be empty on the yeah, inside, yeah. Um, but you want to create that magic and that hype. So that was one, um, one idea. And while I was in business school, um, I was there 2002 to 2004. I was really into something you guys probably never used before your time, but it was called a small world. And it was kind of um, kind of like a Facebook concept. It was a social network. It was very international, really popular all over Europe, a little bit in Latin America. And it was a way to connect with people online and you had a limited amount of people that you could invite. Um, and I was really into it. I had a big network there and you know, my business school days were the days of traveling nonstop around the world. And it was fun because if I was landing in Istanbul or in Mykonos or in um, Stockholm or, you know, you name it, um, Croatia, I could look and see were there members, friends with members that I was friends with who could kind of guide me and give me local advice. And so that was very much by invitation only. So we liked that idea. Also, Gmail had just you know, started around then a little before, I, th I forget what year, but that idea, um, the early beta testers of inviting people. So we figured, let's start Guilt by inviting everybody we know, encourage them to invite everybody they know. And this was really, you know, before any kind of SEO, SCM, you know, there was, we, we didn't even want an, a footprint um, online. We wanted everything to be behind a registration wall. So very different from today's uh, DTC strategies. It was still very, it was likely very, you know, the, the technical component of the business was very important because you didn't have the out of the box tools that you have now for referral programs. Now there's like hundreds of choices for running referral programs, even payment processing, probably, you know, it was fully custom built. Um, how much was the technical component part of the success of the company? Um, and how is that how do, should founders think about that side of their business today compared to then? So again, for your listeners, this was 2007, so very different time and world. And as you say, we didn't have amazing tools that you have today, like a Shopify. So two of our co-founders, uh, Mike Brzezik and Fong Nguyen, they were incredible engineers. We were very much building a tech company with an engineering um, core. And, and that was fun, actually, bringing people from the world of fashion and retail with people who were hardcore engineering talents and just kind of merging these very different worlds and cultures. Literally, there was, um, you know, language barriers, so to speak. The engineers didn't know taxonomies like hosiery when we were um, buying <laughs> yeah. products and, you know, many words that the fashion side of the business did not understand. Um, on the tech side. So that was really fun building a, a combined culture. But we, as you say, we built everything internally. And I think when you work with great engineers, they almost um, they almost get insulted if you were to 
get something off the rack. They, you know, they want to build. They want the challenge. They want the excitement. So, um, of course, we built our own uh, referral program and inventory management system, and we had this um, really complex admin um, portal that we could all access. And um, you know, we were we were building the business while we were driving at right. what felt like 500 miles an hour. So sometimes that can lead to just chaos. you know chaos and craziness and you have to every day prioritize you know what's what's urgent what's important what's nice to have but we can live without it and so we always prioritize the the site the front end of the site and sometimes the the back end the admin wasn't maybe as be as beautiful or as well organized as as what the consumers saw but you always prioritize the consumers and then also on the business side for Gil, I think one of the things that was really exciting about the product at the time was you would see all these brands like luxury brands and like retail brands that you hadn't seen in this sort of um, shopping environment. So like you guys did a really good job of taking something that, you know, felt very premium and you were giving also like insider prices. And um, so I guess my question there is on the biz business side, because all those things that you were doing and those relationships that you were forging, a lot of those principles, I'm sure, are pretty still applicable today to entrepreneurs building out different sort of marketplaces or partnership-led businesses or everything like that. So how did you guys go about starting getting some partners, getting your first retail partners um, and building out that side of the business on the supply side? Yeah, I mean, a lot, I think, back then it's applicable today. So if you're starting a business that's doing something that's never been done before and you are pitching to partners who have to scratch their head and understand like, wait, what are you talking about? What is Web3? What is the metaverse? What is um, an influencer? I mean, whatever it is that your company is all about, you have to educate the people that you're trying to convince. So in our case, my role was traveling around the world convincing brands to trust us with their most prized possession, their inventory and, and their brand, and um, do it in a way that felt appropriate. And that was really uncomfortable for a lot of these brands. They did not feel comfortable selling online, um, and the idea of online and at a discount was just terrifying for many of them. Many of them didn't even have full price e-commerce. So, you know, you gotta remember 2007, or even 2008, 2009, as we really got scaling, was was just a different time. Um, so how did we convince them? Um, I mean, it started with our existing network. And I love networking. I love meeting people. I love keeping track of people. Really uh, use LinkedIn and tools like that constantly. Uh, and I would reach out to, I would make lists. I'm a big list maker. So, you know, I'd make lists by product categories. So let's say within women's fashion, it would be by category. So you'd have like ready to wear accessories, jewelry, beauty, et cetera. And then you'd bucket it maybe by price point. And then every brand I could possibly find. So back then it was less about, I mean, I would look online at what the department stores like Neiman Marcus and Saks had online, but it was it was really combing the racks at all these stores, writing down, keeping lists. What brands do they have? What new brands do they carry? And then I would see if I knew anyone there or if I knew someone who knew someone there. And for me, like I get a crazy rush from cold calling. I have no problem cold calling. I don't take rejection personally. I, if I send 10 emails and Nowadays, my hit rate's better. So let's say today, maybe I send 10 emails and seven write me back. I'm like, yes, seven people wrote me back. I'm awesome. Whereas someone else might be like, oh my gosh, three people rejected me. Yeah. And you just can't live life that way if you're an entrepreneur and you're hustling. And you know, all odds are against you as a startup. I mean, when we started Guild, everyone in the fashion industry told me it was a terrible idea. It was never going to work. And they had all these reasons why, you know, brands don't need you. They have sample sales. They have outlet malls. They have the Lomans and TJ Maxx's and Filings Basements of the world. Why would they need you? And the fact that you're online, no way, no way, no way. So you got to hustle as an entrepreneur and you have to have really thick skin. I think the same happens to founders um, that might not be focusing on problems that might be big enough, that might not have challenges that are big enough or problems that are big enough. And the reason I'm saying this is because the same could happen with team building. So say you hire 10 people 
and then three of them are unbelievable talent and then now you have two of those or one of those that it just isn't meeting the bar and the performance and you could obsess over that one person that they're not here on time they're not doing this um when instead you should probably be focused or excited that these three people are doing you know the 80 20 they're, they're driving 80 percent of the impact do you see the same applying in teams and is it the same principle in mindset can you look at it that same way with teams as well? Or should you well, always push for the absolute I, best? Out of I have team? a lot to say about hiring and building teams. And I mean, we all know you guys have lived this yourselves. When you're building a startup in your early days and you don't have a lot of money to pay people and you have to motivate them, incentivize them with the vision, the mission, maybe some equity. And, you know, it's not just the bi-weekly paycheck that they're getting there's other reasons that they that you want to convince them to be there i think that it's so important to hire the best athletes so for all the roles i've had you know if you did it if you if you if one were to hire me specifically for the role role that i did let's say a guilt or a glam squad or even an i did not have the exact experience i had never done before i when i started guilt like I had never done online e-commerce, right? I, I, I just, I think it was, I, I work really hard. I have an incredible work ethic. I will not take no for an answer. I like building teams. I'm super driven, um, for example. So when I'm hiring someone, I mean, it depends on the role and it depends how big the team is too. So this is, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But I, I'm more excited to hire someone potentially with less experience, who's just hungry, hungry, excited, passionate, like is going to wake up every morning, potentially without the alarm clock, just super excited to get going on whatever the task is at hand. And I think sometimes when you have, I mean, when you have someone who is negative, toxic, brings the culture down, it never gets better. It just doesn't. It gets worse. And you, you really got to nip that in the bud. If it's not so much like a negative toxic situation, but maybe just a low performer, that's not as bad. Yeah. Um, but I think you really want to hire people who you can trust and who are going to take on, who are, who are really just hungry and thirsty and always want to take on more. Um, as opposed to maybe what you would find more in like stereotypical corporate America, which isn't true, by the way. I, I really did love my Allergan experience, but it might be more like a nine to five attitude and turn my phone off on the weekend and I'll turn it back on 9 a.m. Monday morning. Like that does not work in a startup, as you guys know. So, well, a lot of that can be you know, you can set the stage as a founder in the hiring process and be transparent and set the expectations right in the beginning. I think it's really encouraging that you say that because for first time founders, they also don't, they can't, even if they wanted to hire super experienced, they might not have the network, they might not have the pool to attract that, that kind of talent. So it's really encouraging for, for them to hear you say that, that you can still, you can definitely, you might be at an advantage with people that are just really hungry and might have the ignorance is bliss approach to um, a market that hasn't been proven or anything like that. So, um, and then what are the attributes of teams that create magic? Um, because you build teams in all of these different sectors. Um, you know, you then went to services marketplace outside of e-commerce. Um, yeah, what are the attributes that create magic um, in a team? So I think diversity within teams is super important. So diversity, not, not only on the outside, uh, but also in, well, certainly in experience. But for us, we did this early on at Gilt, and then I used the same coach for Glam Squad and even brought him into Allergan. Um, if you take like a personality test like a Myers-Briggs, it's really important that not everybody has the same profile and thinks the same way. You don't want um, everyone, you know, a 20-person team or a 10-person team, if 50% of the team members have the same profile, that's not good because that means people are, you know, thinking the same way. It's really important to have different perspectives. It's good to have some team members with who can who love data and want to analyze every 
aspect of data they can possibly get, and that's really important. But then you also need some decisions to be driven by gut instinct and um, and you know, in build like everything about Gilt that we did was fast. We built it fast. You shopped on the site fast. The sales, you know, were were on and off quickly. We received inventory. We tried, like we were just. It always felt like going a million miles an hour. We hired. We grew fast. We there was a two-year period where our team went from 25 employees one quarter, next quarter 50 employees, next quarter 100 employees, next quarter 200, 400, 800 employees, like doubling every quarter. Like that's crazy growth, um, which is exciting, but also puts a huge amount of pressure on so many aspects of the business from physical space. This was back when we worked in offices together to, um, you know, just thinking through org charts and, and whatnot. I, I do want to ask about through that, since you brought up the timeline, um, I think you guys also power through a potential like consumer economic, you know, downturn um, that that period was around what year specific? 2008. Right. So how did you navigate that? And like how I, I'm, the reason I'm asking that is because we're starting to see some of this now. How should founders think about operating in a market like that with consumer goods? Sure. So. Um, well, I'm definitely not an economist, and and the reason the reasons for what happened in 2008 versus what's going on now were very different. So in 2008, and I hate to say this, but I do think that the recession back then, which kicked in after Gilt already started. I mean, we didn't create the business because there was a recession, but the recession accelerated our growth in a few ways. One was um, on the inventory side, which is what I was. You know, that was kind of focus number one for me. Although as a founder, you wear a million hats, as you know. Um, but brands that initially maybe didn't, were nervous to partner with Gilt or hadn't quite said yes. But, you know, for me, if a brand says maybe or no, like I would just interpret that as not yet. They, you know, I'm going to go back and, and convince them. So a lot of brands that had been on the fence all of a sudden as the recession got really bad and they were getting returns back from their retailers like department stores, all of a sudden they were calling me and, and um, saying things like, uh, okay, we have like one luxury brand, Valentino, I'll tell you. I used to have to be secretive about this stuff, but I guess enough time has passed. Um, and, and the CFO Valentino is like, I have $400,000 at cost of inventory that I'll sell it to you for 400K and you need to tell me by end of day today. And and $400,000 at that moment in time for us was a huge amount of money. Like we had never made an inventory purchase anywhere close to that, but it was Valentino, it was an incredible brand. And so, and and it was sight unseen. Like usually when we bought and chose inventory. They reversed the flash sale on you. Totally, and totally. And then, and, yeah. you know, and then they create this FOMO for me. Yeah. It's like, well, if it's not you, I'm calling Century 21 next. Yeah. I'm calling Lomans. And I'm like, ah. And um, anyway, yeah. so we made the decision. We went forward. We purchased the inventory. But so on the inventory side, definitely a lot more opportunity became available. It put pressure on us because we needed more capital. Um, to, to fund that inventory. Initially, thought we thought we could consign it, but in the troubling times, these brands needed cash to, for, for their own future um, and stability and, and for them to be able to buy fabrics and materials for their future seasons. Um, consumers were still, were still shopping. They just were, well, one was a lot of consumers, let's say New York City, which is where we were based, they liked the feeling that guilt was more secret and they could buy online and they weren't necessarily walking around Madison Avenue in New York City with a big shopping bag, but it came discreetly to their home and no one, it, it wasn't like as conspicuous consumption as, as retail shopping in stores. And then, you know, people felt good about getting a deal. Everyone loves to get a deal. It doesn't matter how, how many zeros you have in the bank, it still feels great to get a deal. And so for one person that could be a Rebecca Minkoff handbag, 50, 50% off feels great. And maybe you're getting it for, I don't know, hundred bucks or something like that. And for someone else, um, it could be you're getting a $20,000 Val- Valentino gown on sale for, 
whatever, $2,000, and that feels great. So it can happen at all price points. Yeah, and so how did the, and, and then, you know, I wanna move over to sort of the other businesses you built, but one last thing is like, how did the magic come about um, the flash sale component? I feel like that is probably one of the largest like key ingredients for Guild being such a success um, of the timeline of the urgency of each deal. Um, I think, you know, for example, Hotel Tonight is an app that I use a lot that has an element of that. Um, and you could have just done it every now and then, but it became a core of the business, which was probably very counterintuitive to what advice must have been or, um, or how traditional discount deals work. Yeah, well, there's so many things we did then that were different from today's world. So first of all, and, and it's changed, but when we launched, there was no search there was no search bar within Guilt. It, you were not going there with intent to be able to find a black t-shirt. Right. You, were, you were going, you'd see, okay, are the brands or product categories that I'm interested here? Great, okay, let me look really quickly. If not, let me leave. But you, you, weren't, you weren't searching white sneakers right. in your size, for example, which um, that was really different when you think of other other sites you weren't were collecting data search. you didn't know what they wanted um before. well no guilt definitely collected a lot of data and we were really far ahead um with personalization depending on what purchases someone had made what clicks you know what clicks they had had made what had been put in their cart even if they hadn't purchased it so everyone's home screen everyone's emails were completely personalized to their behavior and we were doing that like 2010 so a long time ago but um Wait, your question. The deals, the, the, the timeline. Oh, the timeline. Yeah. What was I gonna like say? Like the, the, the flash sales. Yeah. Like being, I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, we didn't even use the word flash sales. Like that became the word for the industry later. We, we just were like, let's make it online and right. 24 hours or 36 hours. And I think what we did well was, was genuinely create urgency and especially our first the first brands we ever sold like brands like Zach Bozen and um, Alvin Valley and Rachel Roy and Quiat Diamonds there was urgency because we didn't have that much inventory and it was really hard to forecast when you have a brand new business like are people actually going to buy anything we have no idea are they going to show up um, so when we so we opened up our membership November 1st 2007 and we had a goal, we wanted 25,000 members to join between that date and November 13th when we were launching. Um, and we thought, yeah, 25,000, that sounds like a good number. So we ended up getting 13,000. Uh, we didn't pay a penny for, for those people. We did not use any digital marketing, zero. It was purely our networks and it was purely you know, I would invite everyone I know and encourage everyone I know to invite everyone they know. And there was the $25 get get. And we were maniacal about it. I mean, we kept sending emails and emails and emails, but very different from how a business today gets launched. Um, and we were actually really disappointed with that 13,000 number, which is funny because when I tell this to founders today, they're like, oh my gosh, 13,000 registered members with emails and passwords and you didn't pay for it? I'm like, no, but we wanted 25K. Anyway, so. The urgency came about from day one because the inventory just sold out really fast. And I think that in just about everything related to startups, whether it's fundraising, hiring people, um, selling products or services, urgency is really important. And I think if people feel like an opportunity is gonna be available forever and there's nothing that really pushes them to pull the trigger, that's not good. And, and we, you know, if anything, we had so much urgency, it was stressful uh, for people. I mean, we, my Alexis, my co-founder and I, we would travel around the country meeting with our top shoppers. And some of the stories we heard over the years were crazy. For example, um, an emergency room heart surgeon would tell us stories that she was so addicted that she would duck out in the middle of surgery to shop at 12 o'clock and we were like oh my gosh that's you know are you kidding me uh well she wasn't quite a surgeon she but she was in the er and um yeah so we we definitely heard all kinds yeah. of fun stories the reason i asked is because nothing works for me more in sales than urgency um and it, i don't see it implemented enough in, in innovative enough ways today in commerce i think you know for example nfts like you know sort of have an element of totally. urgency which is limited supply yeah. and then if you don't buy the initial run of the limited supply well 
there's going to be more supply, but at secondary market rate. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity for, for companies to continue innovating in, in, in commerce and um, in urgency pricing. But what I find... Well, the thing with NFT, so I totally agree with you on NFTs having transparency. Or, sorry, urgency. NFTs having urgency. The challenge is there's transparency there. So you actually know, usually as a, as a potential consumer of an NFT, you know how many NFTs are in an actual drop. So you can see like what percentage are actually right, sold. The supply. The supply, exactly. Yeah. So, and that can make you feel like, well, then I don't need to make a decision that quickly because right. it's only 20% sold right. out. Whereas in our world, we rarely ever showed the supply. So you had right. no idea if they're like three dresses available right. or 30,000. And there was just the timer there. So you as the consumer, you, you don't know what's going on. And I've, I've even seen in like NFT sales, like you know exactly how it's going. You might be like, oh, wow, things are really picking up. If I don't buy it now, it's obviously going to be gone. Whereas what you're saying is for for guilt, it was you just didn't like the know. Time you didn't and know. and in brick and mortar, if, let's say you guys are going yeah. shopping for some like hot new cool sneaker you want. If you go into the store and you see thousands <laughs> of boxes, right. yeah. you're gonna be like, oh, I guess right. it wasn't so hot and yeah. not so cool. Whereas you'd rather go in and they the sales associate says like, wait, I might I might have one left yeah. in your size, and you're like, please, please, yeah. please, please, please. Whereas online, in, in, in normal e-commerce, you don't know the depth, which yeah. is yeah. interesting. Did you see the same in restaurant reservations? To me, it's so bizarre that there isn't still dynamic pricing for restaurant reservations based on seating inside the restaurant. Because sometimes I'm like, I want that seat and I would have paid for getting that location, just like a stadium, like a Sea Geek or something. Like, how does that not exist for restaurants? How are people not paying dynamic pricing based on availability and location well, there, within there's, there's just so many variables right like from um from every restaurant's obviously different and and not only that then you have to do every party's different so different party sizes so so they have like their table management software where they're moving things around and then a lot of times like then they'll have the reservation service. So it's just, it's a tricky problem to solve. And where we wanted to do for like the dynamic pricing for seated, we came in with a similar model to like, you know, something like Gilt was doing where we were like, okay, we want to help sell, sell the unused inventory, provide like a discount and a, a reason to go. But like to, to really get to that level, like I think it'll, yeah. it's, it's a little tough uh, yeah. against the nature of hospitality. But so, um, yeah. So another question, I, well, one thing, just going back to like the flash sale, I think it's really cool because it's like you see this concept of like drops these days where like commerce brands or creators, everyone like has their drop. And this was like the OG drop, right, on yeah. Guild. And like I remember even even going onto the site and being like, oh, what brands are dropping this week? So um, it's really cool to see how things evolve, but those concepts still say the same, right? Like people like scarcity. I mean, it's, like, you know, when, when you have a consumer that's putting in their calendar an appointment for something that's right. not really an appointment, you know, an NFT drop, a guilt sale. I mean, I, I would hear so many consumers would tell us funny stories of like, you know, work, investment banking partners or um, consultant, consultants, like senior level people, um, they would put standing blocked meetings on their calendars from 12 to 12.15 Eastern Standard, like every every weekday. You know, we so if anyone listening has a company that their customers do that, reach out to Clarice. <laughs> <laughs> um, those are the, the dynamics. But what I find really interesting about then is the fact that when you went from that into Glam Squad, it's like it's such a completely different business. Like if I... If I was in your shoes at that time, it definitely a risky bet in the sense that, okay, now we're going to be dealing with real people interacting with each other in the physical world. Whereas like the dynamics of a marketplace, say with Glam Scott, it was like, well, sorry, with Guild. Well, these are established businesses that you can rely on for the inventory. Um, in Glam Squad, um, you know, was it personal hairdressers? Like were, was it individuals or was it businesses i mean how did yeah, you how yeah, did you yeah. calculate the risk of like um, going in to make that decision i mean so if you look at the arc of my career um it's really always been, except the very beginning which was investment banking but that was so long ago but beyond that it was always about the consumer and in a in an interesting way 
all, all the consumer businesses I've touched, in theory, it could be the same consumer, um, just different market share of her or his wallet. So going from guilt to glam squad, it was literally the same consumer, at least the woman. So it was a time starved, busy, urban woman who um, appreciated the convenience of having a hairstylist, makeup artist, manicurist come to them, whether that was their home, their office, hotel, if they were traveling at a relatively affordable price point for for what those services are. So it was, you know, historically the, the rich and famous were people who right. would have drivers a la Uber or... Right. It's democratizing uh, access yes. for what was previously unaccessible for yes. mid-level America or whatever. It was just access to the previous rich. So it's the same thesis, basically. And, because the, sa and the same ICP in both, both cases, the just different services that mm -hmm. you're giving them. Yeah, total, I mean, totally different businesses, platforms, unit economics, supply demand challenges. Um, but but I like that. I, I've, uh -huh. I don't think ever in my career I'll do the same thing twice. I find that boring um, for me. I, I, like, I like the challenge of something new and then I like being able to apply things I've learned previously in a totally different context to something new. So... Um, and that's one of the reasons my my business partner in Clarity and I get along so well. She's been an investor the majority of her career. I've been an operator the majority of mine. And we've both done it across consumers. So we can get just ex excited about a consumer healthcare concept to a pet concept to a beauty, you know, whether it's, you know, you might have some beauty people who are like, well, I'm really an expert in skincare. And other people, well, I'm, I'm a color cosmetics expert. And I'm like, oh, wow, that's super specialized. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I love it all. I like yeah. hair, color, skin, aesthetics, tools. You know, it's all health and wellness, ingestibles, supplements. It's all interesting and, and potentially it's all targeting the same consumer. Um, mo I, I've been an advisor to some B2B businesses and I definitely understand it I, I probably b2b to c is is even more um relevant for me but but the businesses that let's say i co-founded were yeah. were b2c the, the reason i'm asking is because the the differences i noticed between b2b and, and and consumer is that b2b go to market it's almost always has a safe safe plan of like the outbound sales-led approach Whereas consumer is very dependent on unit economics. Um, and those can change throughout time, just how we're seeing now with Facebook ads, customer acquisition, et cetera. So, so to that point, um, business development relationships deals were really important for all the businesses I've been a part of. So for example, at Gilt, we had a BD team um, and we, we did this to a much smaller scale at Glam Squad where we would be, so if you take, and for your entrepreneurs now, hopefully this will spark some ideas, but if you have a business with consumers and you have certain things that other brands might find valuable, you can pitch that. And so take for, so guilt, by the time I left, which was 2014, they had 13 million members. That was a really coveted audience. So there were a lot of brands with deep pockets, whether they were car companies, we did things with Lexus, um, Infiniti, Audi, Jaguar, where you know car companies, airlines that had deep pockets would pay big dollars to do cool partnerships that were um, very creative, had a press angle, had a, had a purchasing angle, and you could kind of bring a lot of factors together and, and even some glitz and glamour with celebrities. So like what to wear on a flight or something like that? No. Um, <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I'm trying uh, to, like for their employees so, to wear Valentino, like, I don't, I don't. So like, we did some fun things. So, so one was a, a specific car, model was being launched with infinity and infinity leveraged guilt to help launch the car so guilt brought on two fashion designers one was tom brown one was zach posen each designer 
designed the interior of the car. Wow. So like pick, you know, I think um, one of them had really cool stingray and certain colors and very customized. And then we got a lot of press around these cars. The cars traveled to different markets and we would do events. Miami was one of the cities, I think, where we would have Guilt City events. People could get in the car, you know, pretend to drive it, take social media imagery. And then ultimately we sold those two cars. I mean, there were only two. It wasn't like, um, you know, there wasn't depth at all, but we sold them on Guilt. So that was exciting, buzzworthy, presworthy. And, and the car companies paid guilt serious dollars. Other things that, you know, maybe an entrepreneur listening to you, to the podcast might find easier would be the equivalence of, um, you know, I'll, I'll write about your company in my email newsletter and on my social media if you do the same on yours. And so kind of email list swapping, yeah. um, uh, putting inserts into boxes. I mean, that's that's been around for a long time, um, but you can do it in a cool way and um, maybe an un- unexpected way, clever partnerships. Um, we did we did a cool partnership with Virgin America at Gilt where we branded an opportunity and sold a whole flight um, worth of, you know, people could, could buy it. And I, I don't even remember all of it, but it ended up getting an insane amount of press um, in terms of all that. And it ended up, one of the plates we sold was New York to Miami and then a whole Miami weekend of fun fun nightlife, as you can imagine, um, was organized for, yeah. for the group. Yeah, it's just cool to see like as, as a company grows and you have a really specific customer audience, then more and more brands and more and more partners want to get involved with you so like i i mean i think it's something like we've even seen with the podcast like what you know at first you started out and then you're able to bring in more collaborators and be able to whether it's putting on events or like you were saying you know shout for shout there's so many different things and i just think like being mindful of partnerships all the way up as you're growing your business i, lo- I really love partnerships i think there can be three objectives so one can be to drive revenue so is there a partner that will pay your company money another is customer acquisition is is there a way to get more um, consumers shopping your company and then the other could be a halo effect so maybe you're not making money maybe you're not actually getting any new customers per se but the adjacency of being able to say that your brand is um, somehow partnering and collaborating with another brand could could just be great for especially at the stage like totally. and, and all brands are at different stages so like even when you were saying when you guys did that inventory purchase of all that Valentino sort of merchandise, probably at that stage in the business, this could have been a, like a really transformative thing. Oh, it was thing, huge, right? absolutely. Because like you're constantly battling the thing and you're thinking about all the other luxury partners that you want to sign on. You're like, wait a minute, if we have this massive merchandising from Valentino, then we're going to be able to go, you know, parlay that into all these other sort of partnerships and initiatives that we want to want to be able to do. So I think that's the other fun thing about partnerships is everyone's looking at different um, opportunities and everyone's at a different place in their own business. So like as a brand, you always have some leverage and you can always leverage a partnership to, you know, push you in the, the direction that you're trying to move. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so why don't we move on to a little bit of uh, Glam Squad stuff. So th- that was kind of, so you'd been super successful with Guilt, you built out that business and then, um, you know, you move into the service businesses. And again, we said similar consumer base, but Again, it's a whole new problem, right? It's a marketplace. Um, you actually have service providers providing a service. So ha- when you got there, having had all your learnings from Guilt, what were you thinking about in terms of the business? What were your key initiatives? And like, what was really exciting to like go after and optimize um, when you started Glam uh, Squad? <laughs> I mean, there were so many things to think about and, and prioritize, but at the end of the day, um, for, for any, startup you need to have product market fit or product service fit and and glam squad had that so consumers appreciated having the convenience of someone this glam squad started with hair so a blowout in in the convenience of your home or office or hotel and and so then once we got really positive feedback and encouragement of yes you know consumers wanted this on the supply side, the hairstylists really liked having flexibility over owning their schedule. So whether it was 
they would open up their, we called it their books, their schedules for, for Glam Squad at certain times of day, certain days of the week. If you had um, maybe a mother with small children who didn't really want to be every day with the same schedule in a salon, they liked the flexibility that Glam Squad offered them. And then Glam Squad also had really weird, t so take New York City, um, a really popular time slot in New York City to get a blowout was like 6 a.m. or 6.30 a.m. Where, whereas Miami, yeah. not so early, yeah. <laughs> not nearly as early. So, um, you know, behaviors in different markets were different. And so we got that product market fit right. Um, and then it was a question of how do you prioritize expansion going into other services? So we chose makeup, then we chose nails. But we evaluated all kinds of other possibilities also from spray tans to facials to massages and we 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 didn't but we still went through the process of considering it and then it was also going to other cities so after new york the next city was la which was a totally different dynamic um if you compare how how the city from a supply perspective how the the stylist navigated a driving city versus a city that's very much um, public transportation. So you know these were these were all things we had to understand. And then as we were ra thinking about raising future rounds, we wanted to be able to prove that we had a playbook for different kinds of markets. And some markets were high. You know, you have a city like a Washington D.C. or a Chicago. They're kind of hybrid markets where parts of the city you can navigate with public transportation, and other parts of the city. Um, you know, you need you need a vehicle of some sort. So, um, so those were, I guess, those were the complete opposite spectrums, and so that made it really easy to then expand to, um, not necessarily very easy, but like, <laughs> yeah, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, not, nothing not about a startup easy. is yeah, easy yeah. for the record. Well, uh, it's, well, LA <laughs> is just like. Yeah. Um, I know the infrastructure is so opposite, polar opposite from New York. And then so everything else outside of that probably sits in the middle between totally. those two. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when you're building a business, you always have to go back to the initial question and root of what problem are we solving? Um, you know, in order to keep that North Star and keep the focus aligned on the business. How did you look at that with a marketplace and a supply and demand? Did you have, you know, was it always the the supply is first above all was it the demand first or is it always we're here to satisfy both sides both needs they both have different problems and reasons why they're there yeah it's it, any business that has supply and demand um you know always in this tug of war ha has to be constantly I live it, so. <laughs> you live it i know so <laughs> you know it's 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 always going to be you know, just think of it literally a tug of war. It's always going to be pulling a little bit one side versus the other. And I think you, you need to do everything you can to keep it in balance. And so maybe there's seasonality, um, maybe that, you know, certain times of the year in certain markets, there might be, there might be less demand. There could also be less supply. Sometimes it's just less demand, but the supply is the same. Right. Um, but yeah, many, many learnings for sure. Um, a lot of creative marketing that, I, I think in all the startups I've been involved in, we try to um, think about how, how we can create some excitement and for as little money as possible. Mm -hmm. So for example, Glam Squad, we did a fun stunt in, I forget what year it was, maybe it was, was it 2014 or 2015 around Fashion Week in New York within, we had a, myself and, and a woman named Amanda Rosenberg, we took a meeting with Uber and said, you know, can we, and, and it was the time where Uber was doing a lot of clever stunts in, in different cities. And so we said, could we pull off a stunt around Fashion Week where a consumer could book, uh, get it, book an Uber and also maybe get their hair and makeup, hair and or makeup done in the car on the way to a fashion show, which like is not really practical. You yeah. don't want a hot tool in a, in a moving vehicle, but That's it was a partnership. Just, yeah, it was a partnership. It was yeah. gimmicky. And Uber was basically like, sure, happy to do it. We can add the little icon onto our app. Yes, we can pull this off in three days, but we will not give you the car. We will not put any money into it. Um, so if you can make everything else work, we'll get, we're happy to put the icon on, on the app. 
So we made it happen. Um, didn't know how we were going to do it, but I think that's what you find in startups. It's like, okay, how can we find a car? How can we wrap a car? How can we do this as frugally as possible? And I think in the end we paid $10,000 and it was buzzworthy and we got a lot of press around it. Just, you know, Glam Squad partners with Uber. And Glam Squad was an itty bitty company at the time. Yeah. We were not a big company. Um, we were just kind of getting going and, and pulled this off. So I think startups, you know, sometimes I hear founders be like, well, I don't really have, I don't have budgets to do creative things. and. You can be guerrilla marketing, tactical, boots on the streets, doing, doing clever things with, with fewer dollars than, than one thinks they might need. You just have to pick a lane. Yes. Right? Yes. If you're trying to do that, the guerrilla marketing, and try to figure out Facebook ads, yeah. that's probably where the timeline gets shrunk. Yeah. Yeah. And there, I guess there, there are different sort of channels and different ways you prioritize and like think about um, doing things. And I think like the, the, the cool part about what you're saying is like even when you 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 guys as glam squad did the partnership with uber it's like it takes some creativity right like because you're never going to outspend like uber on a specific campaign but if you can say huh this would actually bring some value to uber right they'll let us do this they're going to have a lot of reach we're going to have a lot of demographic overlap this is going to be great for our brand it's press worthy and all these things but that takes ingenuity because that opportunity not everyone can suss out and it's a very specific to like the i mean also in all fairness like that was a hyper local business exactly. so if you're trying to build a business nationally overnight maybe you're not gonna want to prioritize in-person stunts the same way that made sense for us you might want to do something that's more online or it could be through um, social media platforms or something that could go national um, versus we were really focused on a specific local audience. That's why I started with that question because uh, from that dynamic, it's su such a completely different business. When you go into it, um, and I guess this this bleeds into what you do at Clarice, um, what are some of the first things you look at like in order to just get a full picture of how is this going to grow? Is it, you know, is it a financial model? I mean, it, it was probably like, you probably didn't even know unit economics of the business yet to even play with that. Um, you know, what are some of the tools that you use to really then bring it to like the hyper growth and scale? And how do you know it's ready? I have just like four um, questions there again. But. Well, so why don't we bring it to today, to our fund, Clara, uh -huh. see how, yeah. how we look at businesses. Um, in, so first, what what is the business? Is it in a category that we believe has has potential that isn't too crowded? And is this company solving a problem or fulfilling a need that in a unique way that that is not being done by five other companies also doing something almost exactly the same? Um, so it ha it has to really have a differentiated approach. Then. Tell me about the team and the founders. You know, are they remarkable, extraordinary? Are they going to kill it and put in their blood, sweat, and tears? Do they have track records of success? Doesn't mean they have to have been a founder before, but do they show achievement in, you know, their time on this planet? Um, is, you know, then then this is where my partner and I start to kind of diverge in terms of where our brains go immediately. So. You know, she is incredibly numerate, financially oriented. So as soon as possible, she wants to dig into the numbers and the KPIs and the metrics. Um, I, I know that that's really important too. But my first instinct, when someone tells me the name of a brand, I'm looking at their Instagram, I'm looking at their website. If I can, you know, taste it, try it, feel it, smell it, put it on me in some way, shape or form, like I want to do that right away. Um, I can attest to that. And, <laughs> and um, because that's also how I understand something yeah. and I want to understand the flow of, you know, if I have questions as a consumer, what tools are available online or in a store or you know, it depends what the business is, because we really look across so many different consumer categories, which is part of the fun. Um, I really love the variety that I get to experience now on the investment side um, that you know, as an operator, there can be a variety, but the variety is different. You're still in one company and um, maybe your your priorities are shifting or new revenue streams are shifting or new markets or 
whatever it is, but it's still one company. So I, I really do love the, the variety of, of our day to day. Well, yeah. And also having all that ex operating experience, having operated these different sort of companies and understanding the consumer. And now you're in a role where you can actually add like a lot of leverage without all the time. And you can kind of get in there, help founders really kind of understand what the key things that they might maybe thinking about as they're scaling to like, as they're scaling up and dealing with their own business problems, right? Yeah, and I want, you know, <laughs> startups are so hard and so emotional and so many ups and downs. And I think that one-on-one -on -one founders often open up to me and confide in me and <laughs> for whatever reason might start crying to me. And, it, you know, I, I smile because I'm like, yeah, I've been there. I, I remember when I had migraines every day for six months in the early days of guilt because I was so stressed. Yes, I remember that. Um, you know, it's very, it's very real. And so I think founders appreciate that I've spent more time in my career on their side than, than, than the current side. But that also sometimes makes me tougher because I'm like, wait, what do you mean you're going on vacation all the time? Or what do you mean you're, uh, you're turning your phone off? Or you're not hustling, you're not working hard enough? Or why aren't you, you know, doing more things to improve the company culture? I mean, all, so, on the one hand, I'm very empathetic because I do know how hard it is. And on the other hand, I think that sometimes I, I um, you know what it, a you know what it bit, takes. Yeah. yeah, I can't, you know, lazy, not OK. Yeah. Like many things are OK. We all make mistakes, but I, I cannot handle a lazy founder. So if I get any, you know, sniff of lazy on an introductory call. I think um, and that's one of the unfortunately like i guess sadness of like a bull run it's like people get so comfortable especially startup founders i mean um we just had we've been having such a crazy bull run and especially you add remote on top of that um yeah money is flowing like crazy into the market but people are like i don't want to go into an office i just want to work from home um people are choosing their times to work you, you don't know where most, I mean, we, we've seen it um, on the pod and everything. And so um, I think I'm not excited for an economic downturn, but like, I do think sometimes, you know, it's good to feel the pressure and, um, and know what it's like to actually just have to work way beyond what you thought you, you had to put in initially. I mean, it's so, look, a lot, a lot of, founders and teams over the past six months that I've spoken to, you know, they'll tell me things like, yep, we cut our burn dramatically. We cut the team, we cut our spend, we cut, 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 cut. And I guarantee that at the time when they were making those decisions, like what fat can we trim? There is no fat. They, they probably felt the majority of them, like, how are we going to do the same with a fraction of, of what we had. And you know what? People figure it out. Yeah. They just, they do because you have to, yeah. you, you, you make it work. It's like you're back against the wall. Your, your survival instincts are going to kick in. I, I remember even like when we were, when we were starting seated, like we, it took so long to like raise as a first time founder coming out of like college with like no experience. It's not easy to like raise. Right. So like for us, we, I mean, we probably lasted like two or two and a half, three years just on like under two million, like well under two million. But, and we were like scrappy. We had like 30 people, like everyone was working for us. We had every restaurant in Boston and then we went to New York and then we started to scale up. And then obviously we got all the backing. But in the early days, it was crazy. Like I, re I remember the first check we raised, it was like, you know, a $50,000 check. We're like, oh my God, this is going to last us forever. Right. And, and, and then it's just easy to like, you know, see when you see bigger numbers and you see other founders spending money different ways, it's easy to like lose sight of that. But like, you can I be love, scrappy. I love what you're saying. I, I love that. It's a, a little naivete, a little innocence of these, these, these wins that are so meaningful and motivate a team and you can have that rah, rah, you know, we're in this together. I, th I think that's really special. And sometimes I think what you were saying, Ramon, with like bull market and so much money, people maybe do get a little complacent and it's important to have humility and, and be grateful for all the wins and, and recognize your team for being overworked, underpaid, yeah. you know, so important to celebrate milestones and, and make, 
the people who you know have chosen to dedicate their careers for you your your founder your vision your mission um you know make sure that they know how grateful so you talked earlier about the traits in employees that that make great teams create magic what are some of the dynamics between co-founders when you look at those teams um, that also create magic within a startup from a co-founder uh, relationship yeah so i so i've advised a lot of companies and then you know you I, i've been a co-founder now three times and have always for me, always done it as part of a team. Well, actually now a fund, which would be the fourth one as a team as well. So I don't know how to do something not as part of a team. I think it's super important where nobody's good at everything. And it's so important to know what are your superpowers? What are you good at? What do you enjoy doing? And and answer that question for every, your co-founders or your early team members. And so one of the reasons guilt worked really well, for example, and all, all my partnerships, I think, because there was, re there was clarity. It was just obvious who does what and, and who's in charge of what. Right. And, and so like at Guild, in the beginning, Alexis, you know, one of my best friends then, she still is, she was the CEO. So she was, she was in charge. Kevin Ryan was our chairman. Um, and, and for the day-to-day decision-making, I mean, we were very collaborative. We were a small team, but Alexis was the CEO. We had two engineers. They knew what they had to do. My number one role was to get inventory. And then the building, the consumer audience, Alexis and I shared that. We, you know, we didn't have a CMO for, for a long so time. So there's accountability and ownership and there's no questions about it. I think it. it's tough. I mean, I've definitely seen some examples where you have like co-founders, co-CEOs. But I think that would be really hard unless it's so clear what that means. You know, that one CEO maybe is forward facing and the other one's operational or what, what however they're gonna divide it. But Which is sort of a COO. I know. Really. So then why do you <laughs> yeah. call it? So why is it right. ego? Why does it have to be yeah. two CEO? I just think it's a little odd. Yeah. Um, I haven't actually seen it kind of a, a company that we've seriously dug into for Clarity. I haven't seen that dynamic yet, but but if I do, you can be sure I will ask a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> so are you guys looking at a specific vertical? Um, we're, we're really open-minded. So across consumers. So we would look at something in beauty, in pet, um, food and beverage. We've made three investments so far. So the first one was in a company called Dormify. So everything related to the dorm or college experience that, that you can imagine. Um, and that's predominantly e-commerce and a mother-daughter founder team. We love them. Uh, the second business is a fintech B2B play called Union. So actually in your world, Brian, a little in the hospitality, um, it's an inventory management system um, as well as a um, ordering uh, platform where consumers in high volume hospitality can order drinks and food um, through QR codes and on an app. And, spirits companies food and drink companies can market directly to the consumer through the app so totally different um, i get to d do a lot of b2b thinking for them um, and then the most recent investment was a company called clean co which is a non-alcoholic spirits company so that's a big trend um, in health and wellness which we like overall so you have a non-alc um, tequila gin vodka and rum um, version so you can so that's a lot of fun check it out clean co yeah that's awesome and then as we just wrap up here i want to talk a little bit about uh miami right like you'd started your companies in new york and now you're down here in miami so uh well you've been but you've been here for have you been here for a little while or what, what, yeah, what was so, the story so my mom is cuban um my entire life i would come since i was a baby to miami specifically to key biscayne which has always been my happy place but i grew up in new york city so as a young girl went to school in new york um you know now i'm married with two children we were raising our kids in new york and we would come to Miami to Key Biscayne to play for vacation. And when the pandemic started, my husband and I just reevaluated a lot of things in our lives and what we wanted and, and the, the world now 
you know, Zoom enabled made it possible for both of us to do our careers from And you want to stay here? Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely want to stay here. Yeah. No, I'm really bullish on Miami. I think um, amazing people are moving here and getting involved and supporting, um, you know, many aspects of the city. I'm, for, for example, I'm on the board of the Paris Art Museum, the PAM. Um, it really involved in kind of tech and entrepreneurship here. Um, it's it's exciting, and I think you know Web three and crypto are are definitely making a, a foothold in Miami. And I think part of it maybe being the warm weather, the Latin undertones. Everyone is very welcoming, friendly. Love people love introducing newcomers to the old timers, and you know lots of lots of tech happy hours, which I think is awesome. And Latin food. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> That's one of Absolutely. my favorites. It's, you know, I'm born and raised in Puerto Rico and I didn't have much of that in Denver or in Austin. Oh, here, my God. I have a Cuban restaurant literally right below my apartment. Cortaditos and croquetas all day. Amazing. Well, anyway, Alexandra, just want to thank you for joining us on DTC Pod. And for our listeners who might be listening in, where can they find uh, you and connect with you? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? Like, where's the best place to follow Yeah, along? all of the above. LinkedIn, for sure. Love it. Instagram, Twitter. Uh, and my name is Alexandra Wilkes Wilson. I know it's a mouthful, but <laughs> if you if you type it all in there, you'll find yeah. me. We'll link you. But so thank you so much for coming on the pod. We had a great time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of DTC Pod. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love your support. A rating and review would go a long way as we continue to host the best builders in DTC and beyond. Follow and subscribe to the show, and make sure to check out our show notes where you can find our socials and weekly newsletter. Visit us on dtcpod.com to join our founder community and access resources from every episode. We'll see you on the next pod.